If you will, turn with me in your Bible to Daniel chapter 11. And if you didn't, you say, I didn't bring my Bible. That's all right. We've got some that are right there in front of you, I hope. And, uh, and you can turn to Daniel chapter 11 right there and see it for yourself. Um, now, we're almost through Daniel. Some of you are like, yes! <laughs> um, I'm a little sad. I really have enjoyed uh, preaching through Daniel. And notice, I, and I'll make this point again, this is not teaching through Daniel. That would be much different than what we've been doing. But rather, applying the book of Daniel to our life. And so I believe that this morning, God wants to say something to all of us from Daniel 11. Now, if you've read Daniel 11, you're thinking, well, I don't know what. That's okay. That's all right. Hang tight. Notice this, Daniel 11. We're going to start reading with verse 1 and go a little bit, and then we're going to just drop down to the bottom of the chapter and finish there. Notice these words. This is the Word of God. And as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Now that is Michael, the archangel, talking to Daniel. And in verse 2 begins this section. Remember, 10, 10, 11, and 12 are all one piece. It's all sort of one story that is split up into three chapters. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, the kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And then drop down and we're just going to read verse 45. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea, that's spacious and splendid tents, beside the sea, or sorry, between the sea and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. Let us pray. Jesus, you have not left us without help, but rather you have sent your help. Would you help now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we introduced this final scene in Daniel. This is, this is the end. Uh, but it's a three-part end. You know how they sometimes will squeeze out uh, a series on television, maybe into three sections of the end, or maybe a movie series that you like. Well, Daniel's somewhat similar. We've been looking at these chapters, or what I'm calling episodes... And now we're at the end. This is it. This is the final scene. There's not going to be another scene after this, but it's split into three. This middle one, chapter 11, is probably the toughest. And honestly, it's probably the toughest throughout the entire book. If you actually read uh, 11 before you got here or at some other point in time, it is the king of the north, the king of the south, this and that. It comes over here and then from the west and the four winds and all of this. And, And it's just... It's a little bit of a whirlwind, and it really doesn't make much sense to us. And so 
we come to this, and here's what has ended up happening, is you have an angelic messenger, this Michael, but also this other angel that we looked at last week, and he's revealing Israel's future. Now, it's not your future, so it, sometimes it's hard for us to kind of get in that mindset when somebody else is talking about their future. But only God could have revealed this specific of an apocalyptic prophecy. And that's a mouthful. We've been somewhat unpacking it. If you're new with us, we're going to mention apocalyptic again. But you've seen apocalyptic shows, surely, on television. They're replete. They're everywhere. God's work is for the nation here, but also for individuals within that nation. And truly, God's plans, whether for nations and kingdoms or for individuals, is unshakable. Now, put on your thinking cap for just a second and bear with me for maybe two minutes or less on the history that was found here in these words. This was written, again, about 300 years before this stuff actually takes place. And yet, it's right on the mark. If you pick up any commentary, you know, if you study this on the internet at all for five seconds, you're going to know that people are amazed at the specificness of this prophecy. Most of the time, prophecy is not very specific. If you've ever read the prophets, you know this. It's more general. It's more image-based. This one is so specific. It's mentioned in ladies here, a, a, a person there. Still in enigmatic ways, mysterious ways, but nonetheless, it is mentioning very exact things, and here's what it is. Babylon, and if you're familiar with your history here, you'll you'll know this too. Babylon was defeated by the Medo-Persians. Medo-Persians are defeated by Greece under Alexander the Great, right? Who conquered most of the Mediterranean and uh, Middle Eastern lands. After Alexander's death, which was just prophesied a little second ago, it said he had no posterity, but rather four, Uh, the empire was divided into four parts. The Ptolemies gained control of the southern section of Palestine, and the Seleucids took the northern part. So, if you want to jot this down for your own sake, verses 2 through 20, which we didn't read the whole thing, show the conflict between the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, which is that whole north-south battle that's going on in this text. And, and finally, over the control of Palestine from 300 to 200 B.C. Now, verses 21 through 35 describe the persecution of Israel under Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, as he was called, who raised himself up as God and destroyed the Jews. You ever heard of Hanukkah? Hanukkah is the Jews coming out of the destruction that Antiochus Epiphanes created. All right, so if you... If you know about Hanukkah, then you, you should know about the events that caused the Hanukkah, which was no light to light. So Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, fades from view in the latter part of this chapter, and all of a sudden a figure that is beyond Antiochus himself, who is the Antichrist, appears and takes center stage. That's the breakdown of chapter 11. But it's all in prophecy. It's all in particularly apocalyptic prophecy with a vision. That's a lot. We're not used to that. We're used to reading the newspaper. We're used to reading articles online. We're not used to reading apocalyptic prophetic visions. And so, suffice it to say, we're not going to teach that today. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm not going to try to unpack that today for you. That would be a teaching of Daniel rather than a preaching of Daniel. What it isn't, though, is straight prophecy. Now, you've heard of Ezekiel. You've heard of Jeremiah. You've heard of Isaiah. They're all prophets. And then, of course, you have the 12 minor prophets. And they all speak prophetically, which oftentimes we immediately associate with just simply telling the future. But their prophecies are not primarily about telling the future. They're not concerned with who wins the Super Bowl or the World Series. Rather, they are concerned about the moral condition of the nation and of the peoples. And what they're saying is God's judgment is going to come. But you can relent. You can repent. You don't have to continue in the way of wickedness because his, what I call, judge-a-meter is full and it's time for judgment. But if you repent, he will relent. So Ezekiel which comes before Daniel in our English copy, and Daniel are both exilic, which means they're in the exile. They've been ripped up from their land and cast out into the land of the first the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They're both exilic visionaries living in a foreign land, not their home, and yet they're envisioning home. God knew it all. The reason this is, this is some of the most specific prophecy we have in the entire Bible. Right here in Daniel 11. There's really no other place that's more specific other than Isaiah naming Cyrus 150 years before Cyrus was ever even born. Most of the time the Bible does not have exact specific prophecy. Here it does. Why? Well, it has to do with Daniel's overall theme. And that is, despite current circumstances, or past circumstances, or even now future circumstances, God is in control. Now, we've been saying that together, so don't be afraid to say it with me. God is in control, and He is. And here we have something amazing, and that is a prophecy given... And years and years and years after the fact, every single little thing in the prophecy comes true. Except for the very end about the Antichrist. And it remains to be seen yet. Now, because it's not just a prophecy, it's rather apocalyptic. Because prophecy has to do with that whole thing of repenting, right? But here, here in Daniel 11, there is no call for repentance. There's no challenge to the people's way of living. It's not God's judgment is coming. Therefore, you need to to, straighten up. It's not, hey, there's a heaven. Hey, there's a hell. Therefore, live right. Live God's way. It's not that. Not here. There's little sense of even God speaking to the people from the prophet, a sense of thus says the Lord. It's just simply prediction without any condition. In other words, it's going to happen. It's almost like God says, look, I know everything 
all the way down to the little details of all the different kingdoms. I mean, had you have been living when Alexander the Great took over the world, you'd have thought, man, this guy's going to, he's going to rock it out for the next hundred years. And he did not. Then you would have thought, well, surely his family will take over afterward. That's just what happens in that day. It did not. It was split into four kingdoms. The four winds that you just heard prophesied. And everything subsequent after that. And we could spend the rest of our time today trying to parse that all out. We're not going to. Because there's a larger issue than just being wowed at the specific, prophetic, apocalyptic, visionary fulfillment. (laughs) It's a lot. There's something more important than that. And that is a lesson on the fact that God knows the future. That's the point of this. God knows every little detail about the future. And not just the future, your future. Now that brings up a lot, doesn't it? At least it does in my mind. Maybe not for you. Some of you are like... No, what's, what's going on? <laughs> um, well, does that mean my future is determined? Does it mean that we live in a fatalistic world? Where no matter what I do, it's always going to end up just like this? We begin to confuse ourselves and question ourselves. And our questions question themselves. And there's a simpler answer than that. We've already seen that God is all-powerful in the first season, if you will, of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6. He has delivered Daniel and his friends, and he also has humbled the mightiest kingdom and king in the world at the time. God has proven that the Babylonian captivity, that the fiery furnace, that the lion's den cannot Thwart, it's a tough word, God's purposes. They cannot mess it up. Well, in season two here, seven through twelve of Daniel, we learn something else, and that is God knows everything. He's all wise, and He reveals hidden, secret things. Because he knows them. That's why he can reveal them. He doesn't just know the future because it is determined. He isn't in control like a video game or a program or like the Matrix. You remember what Morpheus says to Neo when he's talking to him for the first time? He says to him, Do you believe in fate, Neo? No. Why not? Because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. Neither do we. No human has much energy behind a fatalistic, determined world. But a world, like what the Bible will offer to us, is a world where possibilities are endless, so it seems. And yet, all the possibilities are known to God. 
That's part of, part of the way he knows everything. And he does know everything. He knows all the possibilities of your life. He knows all there is to know about knowing. He's run through every scenario, every contingency. He is never, ever surprised. We are, God is not. When something surprises you in your life, surprises me in my life, God is not surprised. God knew. Psalm 139, by the way, if you want a poetic version, if this is a little heavy, Daniel 11, go to the poetry of the Psalms, 139, beautiful Hebrew poetry that shows the same thing, and that is God knows everything. Not only is God all-powerful, not only does God know everything, but part of knowing everything is being everywhere. Now, the Jews were not interested like we are in the whole philosophy part of this thing. They were very concrete thinkers, not metaphysically interested. But if you are interested, let's ask the question, how does God, in fact, know things, and yet our decisions matter? The Bible nowhere acts like the decisions that you make don't matter. Instead, it's the reverse. They are of, they are of ultimate importance. Imagine with me that you are at a parade. You see many floats go by you, bands. You've waved, you've received candy, you smiled... ...as they passed you by. You no longer see them or hear them, but you did. That is the past. You also have some floats or bands that are right in front of you. You see them. You hear them. They are before you. Not in a past tense kind of way. But you behold them. That is the present. Then you have some people and floats and bands... ...that have not come your way yet... ...as you're standing there on the street corner. You've heard, of, you've heard about them. You knew, they were gonna, you knew Spongebob was going to be there. But he hasn't shown up yet. This is the future. We're all, all of us... ...all of humanity... ...is stuck on the street corner... ...of past, present, and future. No one is outside of that... ...as a human... No one knows the future. But God does. <laughs> you see, God does not see time as we see time. He is outside of time, if you will. He is beyond time. So, back to the parade here. Imagine if you were invited to ride in a helicopter for this parade. Wouldn't that change your perspective? I mean, every time you fly, or at least I fly, I'm like, wow, that's a really different view than what I get when I'm stuck in the city. Well, God is not on the street corner, stuck in past, present, and future. Instead, he's 
in a helicopter, if you will. He sees the whole thing going on all at once. The whole gamut of human history. He sees it. And we are insane to choose any other path than God's path. His ways are perfect because He sees everything. He knows everything. He is all-powerful to deliver from anything. Now, these are not just philosophical aspects of our belief. This is a living God we are talking about. The same God that interacted with Daniel and revealed this, reveals this to you today. It's not a figment of your imagination or of the human psyche. No, He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He knows everything about you. He knows everything there is to know about anything. And that's why God is in control. Now this is not good news for everyone. You would think, because God is in control, because God is all-powerful, because God knows everything and is everywhere, this would be a source of joy. But it is not, in fact. It wasn't for the psalmist in Psalm 139. Many people misread that psalm and think that he's praising God because he knows everything. He's scared to death. If you read the psalm properly, he's fearful that God knows it. It's one of these kind of things. He knows everything? Even that? Even when I close my door? Even when I'm by myself? He knows that? He sees me? Even the part of me that I don't let anyone else see? Yes. Some of you yawn inside when you hear that God knows everything. Others of you may fight back with questions... Legitimate questions, normally based in suffering. If God knows everything, why does he let these things happen, we say? Or why does he make these things happen, some would say. While others make light of it as if it were not true. Like something we say, but we don't really believe. You know, like, how are you doing? We don't really care to know we just it's nice to say but this is not just something nice to say God really does know the future for Daniel this wasn't a problem he liked the fact that God was in control It wasn't philosophical philosophical to him. God was in control of the worst of circumstances for Daniel. He was brought there as a slave living under captivity. He was a eunuch, never to be married or have a family. And he was not at home 
or with his family. And he would die this way. He never received any of those things that some of us are gifted with. Was his response to hate God? To blame God? No. He saw all the more need that God was in control. That God knew what he was doing and that ultimately God would make all things that are wrong right in the end. You see, the bad things that happen around us are symptoms of the disease that we all carry. Sin. In other words, if everything in this world was hunky-dory, there would be no need for God that we could see. But, oh friend, isn't there a need for God in our world, in our nation, in our city, in our lives? There is real evil in the world on display in some, and where I'm from, Jackson, Mississippi, this, just this past week, a car was stolen with a child in it, and rather than letting the child go, they executed the six-year-old. You don't believe in evil? Wake up! You don't think that it's knocking at your door, crouching around the corner, just as it did with Cain? Then wake up. Please wake up. Because some of us are asleep. Because we're surrounded in a place that makes a lot of money with houses that are nice, with cushioned seats, food, so much food that, you know, our biggest need is not eating rather than trying to eat. We get this perception that everything and everyone is okay. They are not. We are not. Daniel was looking just beyond his life. He wasn't bemoaning the fact that he couldn't have kids. He's asking God what he can do for God. Now that he can't have kids. Now that he's not going to be with his family. Now that he's going to be stuck in three different regimes that are the evilest regimes of the day. Basically working for ISIS. But we don't see Daniel complaining, do we? We see him walking in God's spirit. Because he believes, Daniel really believed, and you'll see this next week in chapter 12. He really believed that God could make all the wrong things in the world right. And as New Testament believing people... We can say and affirm, God has made things right already in Jesus Christ. But he's going to finalize all of that at the end. And that's kind of where you come in. That's kind of where I come in. Because when he calls it over, it's going to be over. If you're serving him, you will go on serving him. If you're loving God, you will go on loving God. If you are not, 
you will not. God can be trusted, friends. God must be trusted. To do anything other than that is distrust and is sin. Open rebellion, like a defiant tantrum, like in the garden. We do what we have been told not to do, then we go about blaming others. And this separates us from God and others, and it will always do that the rest of your life. For the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God, the gift of God, the grace of God is given to you. Jesus has accepted our penalty, the penalty that was due us, the judgment due us. He took it on himself if we will let him go to the cross for us. To put us on the cross would mean nothing. But to put God there means everything. But just because the penalty has been paid, just because the judge says to you, you're free to go, sir, ma'am, doesn't mean your heart is free. And I think this is the epidemic of our world in America. Here in Madison, Huntsville, Decatur, and Athens, is this. We believe in God. We believe He forgave us of our sins. We said a prayer. But in our heart, there is no victory. We are not full of the Spirit, we're full of ourself. Just as when the children of Israel left Egypt, they were truly gone from their Egyptian slavery. And yet, they longed for Egypt. They longed to go back to slavery. God cured them of that, and He can cure you. He can cure me. So in Daniel 11, we're kind of getting a a little bit behind the curtain of this play of life. If you will, God has given us a wide lens to view things from. A panoramic view, right? All around view, rather than just the screen that's in front of us of past and the things that, or sorry, the things that we can remember from the past and the present that we see. He now widens the lens to show us the end. And there's much activity in this play. You are a main character in this play. And your character matters in the story of your life. So what do we do about that? Well, it's just like when you're sick. You go to the doctor for a diagnosis. Here's our diagnosis. We are childish. You say, hey, that's... That's good, man. Remember, Jesus even said, we got to be like little children. Yes, he did say that, but he did not ever say that we need to be childish. Doesn't call us to be a three-year-old. Jesus said, become like a child to enter the kingdom of God, but he did not mean stay in the kingdom of God like a child. We are childish and we want to do 
what we want to do. Like a child, we think being able to do what we want is powerful, is wise, and it's fun. It brings happiness. But what we find is the exact opposite in our life. Doing what you want is weakness. Succumbing to temptation is weakness. You say, I'm just really weak in that area. I can't help but lose my temper. I can't help but lust after others. I can't help but... It's weakness. Trusting in yourself is so limited that it's laughable to do so. Some of you are in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, wherever you're at on the spectrum. But spiritually, you are a baby. Been in church maybe all your life. Still a baby. You say, so are you asking us to leave? If we're, we're still, I'm not asking you to leave anymore. Not ask my own children to leave. No, but I am asking you to grow up. To submit yourself to others who are more mature than you. One of the hardest things that kids have a job to do is to listen. If you have children, you know this. Listen to me. I'll say, Baylor, go get me this. Dude's going in the wrong direction. Baylor, this comes back 30 minutes later. Still doesn't have it. So, son, what have you been doing? Just wandering around in your room? And many of us have just been sort of wandering around in the church, not doing anything to help others. Still sucking the milk out of what we can rather than being mature believers who can disciple others. Let's grow up together. Let's grow up in Christ together. The only way that happens is if you are willing to submit yourself to God and to someone else. You say, I'm, I'm good with God, but I just don't, you know, it's just sort of this me and Jesus thing. I'm telling you right now, it won't work. You have been believers so long now that you ought to be teaching others. Instead, you need someone to teach you again the basic things about God's Word. Some of you don't even know how to study God's Word. Been in church 30 years. You're like babies who need milk and cannot eat solid food. This is what the writer of Hebrews says in 5.12. Well, not that part that I've put in there, but you get the point. You say, why are you trying to make me feel bad? I'm not trying to make you feel bad at all. I'm saying you and your unhappiness and your fickleness can stop. You don't have to remain a baby forever. You can find victory in Jesus Christ. But like a child, we think we know it all. Little Johnny asked his mother her age. She replied, gentlemen, don't ask ladies that question. Johnny then asked his mother how much she weighs. Again, his mother replied, Gentlemen, don't ask ladies that question. The boy then asked, why did daddy leave you? To this, the mother said, you shouldn't ask that and sent him to his room. 
On the way, Johnny tripped over her purse. When he picked it up, he found her driver's license. Johnny runs back into the room. I know all about you now. You are 36 years old. You weigh 127 pounds and daddy left you because you got an F in sex. Sometimes we think we know, don't we? Like little Johnny, we think we got it all figured out when we don't. The scripture says this, do not lean on your own understanding, but lean on God. Lean on others. Lean on me. Who's willing in this church to say, lean on me? I'm tired of leaning on everybody else. It's time to get off that and on to the work that God has called you to do that I can't do. You to do that no, that your neighbor can't do. We've all been called for that. And I promise you there's fulfillment in that if we'll get over ourselves, Stop being childish. Our cure is to trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. The only cure that's offered is God. He's it. He's the only game in town. And when God comes in us, He will call us to others. The enemy wants us to be isolated. He knows that we are better together. He's all about disunity in the body. Disunity in your own soul. Do not listen to the lie. This is about oneness with God. Oneness with others. So, let's make sure we're not operating under the lie of the Antichrist. Rather, let us make this our prayer. My will put to the side. God's will put to the first. Our first priority. Your happiness, my happiness is not ultimate. But holiness is what we are called to. Pride rules the day, it seems. But we're downrange in a war. You can't just think about yourself. If you read anything about the Navy SEALs, they are a tight-knit group that would die for each other. That's what makes them so effective. They're not going to leave their brother. What if that could be the desire of all our hearts? What I'm saying, it must be. But many of us, the world just literally revolves around us like a three-year-old. You say, well, I don't really like that. I think I'm going to leave the church. Sounds like a threat from a three-year-old. My three-year-old threatens me all... My four-year-old now. He's still acting like a three-year-old. He threatens me all the time. I'll do this if you don't do that. Okay. This is not a game. If we could see in this room how mature you are in Christ, would it be embarrassing? Would be for me. Would be for me for you to know. Thankfully, we don't know. 
thankfully, I don't know. So looking across the room, you look great to me. You're like, you're, you're doing it right. But God knows everything. So, <laughs> uh, be encouraged today. <laughs> You're like, dang, man, I was, you know. Um, so be encouraged that God knows the future. It was encouraging for Daniel. <laughs> be led by God, not your own understanding. Not my will, but thine, O Lord. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your path. Obey now, for the future is secure, my friend. There's no surprises for God. If you're at the beginning of this journey, if you're at the end of this journey, there are no surprises for God. And I believe that He has you here this morning because He knows you and wanted to say something to you. I don't know what that is. That's the unique thing about preaching. You're like, man, it sounded like you were talking right to me. I, I didn't know it. This is just sort of what I've been overhearing through the week from God that I've had to repent on. Obey now, for the future is secure. Let this motivate you. Let it spur you on and spur you to good works in Christ Jesus. Amen.